Hello, this is Gary Meese with The Case Against. I think we're up to episode five now. I'm going to talk, you know, we talked about the, so far and for the foreseeable future, we're going to be talking about the West Memphis Three case. Um, I plan to get into a a chapter today on uh, called A Swirling's cauldron of suspicion from my book blood on black however uh before i get into that uh there were some materials that i i was aware of that i'd read in uh uh, and research for the books but i didn't incorporate all this this information into the uh to the book simply because there was so much of it and um <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I hope, uh, and I felt it might be a distraction from the actual narrative of the case. Um, but there are allusions to it, and 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 I cite those books as references in uh, the initial volumes. Um. One of those, one of those sources is, and and what this gets into is something that's one of the more controversial aspects of the case, to put it mildly. Not that there's a lack of controversy in other areas, but it's it's concerning um, occultism. Now we have a a guy who was convicted. 25 years ago or so of, of a, 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 a triple killing of three small children that was, if not conclusively proved as a ritualistic uh, sex crime, occult sex crime, <clears throat> it was certainly suggested in the, the court proceedings that that was at least some of the motive. Uh, and here, 25 years later, he puts out a book called High Magic that is all about occult rituals and talks about that being his, his whole life, uh, everything he does. It's all geared toward occult rituals. This is not a coincidence. It's not something that just happened, and it's not uh, a sign that uh, back in 1993 that Damien Eccles, one of the three who was con convicted of killing Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, three little eight-year-olds in second grade who were innocently playing one afternoon when Eccles, uh, his friend Jason Baldwin, and another good, another close acquaintance, if not a, precisely a friend, might be stretching it a little bit, uh, Jesse Miskelly, uh, were awaiting them in the woods, attacked them, tortured them, uh, killed them several different ways, which is part of what I'm going to be talking about today, and uh, and left the, left their bodies in a muddy ditch to be found the next day. Uh, I write about this case in three books, uh, Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go, and The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers which is a condensed, revised 
one volume version of those other two books. And those books are available on Amazon. Uh, enough of the enough of the advertising. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm not coming up with this stuff out of a vacuum from my own books, and the books didn't come out of a vacuum either. They came out of mostly the court records, but there were other sources I consulted. Some of which were not in the court record, and some of which I haven't seen cons uh, cited by anyone else, uh, and some of which concerned uh, occult uh, influences, potential cult influences in the case. Uh, I would be the first to say that, based on not just his first his first confession, but virtually all his confessions afterward, the many confessions of Jesse Miskelly. Uh, on first blush, it looks like this was uh, an, a, a bullying attack by three drunken teens that got out of hand, way, way out of hand. And there's, some, I think that is how Miss Skelly perceived it. And and uh, as far as he was concerned, that's that's probably all it was. Uh, it's interesting in a confession he gave to a, one of his fellow inmates that was later presented in a letter to, I think it was to Brent, da I think the letter was to Brent Davis, the prosecutor. The inmate describes uh, Miss Kelly as saying that Ms. Uh, Eccles said a prayer before the boys were placed in the water. Uh, that's the only time that details come up, and it's honestly the only suggestion that there was any kind of actual religious occult witchcraft, however you prefer to style it, satanic, however it's styled, whatever the intention was, it's the only real action suggested that would be like the usual understanding of what uh, an occult, occult or religious ritual would be. However, there are aspects to this, this that uh, are overlooked because they're not, they're, I would say, dimly understood or not understood at all. Uh, including uh, what's referred to as the power of three. Uh, Eccles refers to this in his own uh, talks with the police, talk about the how three has a special sort of power. And uh, the understanding of this is largely, has, has, quite a bit to do with three being uh, related to the Holy Trinity as it's some, somewhat of a react and as being somewhat of a reaction to to or a reflection of depending on which tradition we're talking about in the hermetic tradition uh, some of that's Christian in a sense but uh, but also to the uh, genitals, uh, with to I, do I need to explain that? But there's you know there's basically three organs down there in men, and uh, holding special powers that reserve <laughs> that aren't they aren't to be found anyplace else in the body. Um, so the power of three, 
Uh, Eccles talks about this. Dr. Dale Griffiths, the occult expert, and I think he he had a kind of expertise in the occult, though I don't think he did a very effective presentation in court. Uh, generally speaking, though, I think he, he did help the jury and the judge and so forth understand what Eccles might have been talking about. I don't think he did an excellent job of that, but I think he did a, perhaps a sufficient job of that. Uh, he talks about that. Uh, there is uh, the, uh, there's an aspect in the uh, in pagan belief. Uh, Wiccans have a thing called being sky-clad, which is being naked. So the three boys were sky-clad. In other words, they were exposed to the sky. Uh, and the three important elements in the Wiccan belief, I, as I understand it, I mean, there's four earth, air, uh, would be, uh, uh, in this particular case, they had particular exposure to the sky, to the earth and to water, all three very important Wiccan elements. So there's a threefold aspect to to uh, the setting there, or not the setting, but the circumstances of their death. Um, more to the point, there is what was described as an overkill by um, the police, and I think it's uh, pretty obvious if you read the auto autopsy reports and or go over the testimony from Dr. Frank Peretti in the uh, court proceedings that the that the, this was not just uh, you know just a simple killing, but it was uh, a, a torture killing. It was overkill by almost any standard, and in fact, it was what I would at least in one case uh, you. Christopher Byers would have been killed three times. He would have been. He died from bleeding. He was his his head was beaten insufficiently, as were the other two, that he would have died from that. And uh, he was placed in water, where he would have drowned if he wasn't already dead. The other two died from drowning. They all three of the boys, Freddie, uh, Freddie, Peretti testified, uh, and the autopsy records show that all three of the, uh, of the boys had, uh, wounds deep, I mean, large damaging wounds to the base of the skull that would have been sufficient to produce brain death and effectively kill them. Um, in addition, there were other wounds to the head. Uh, uh, two, two of those, two of those wounds to the base of the skull, um, from to Stevie and uh, to Michael, appeared to have been made by the same fairly large instrument, and the other one uh, seemed to have been made by a, a somewhat small, like three or four inches. The other one seemed to be more like a broom handle used on. Uh, Christopher Byers, but creating a great deal of damage to the base of the skull. Um, 
Michael Moore in particular had two large wounds, beating uh, wounds to the top of the head where he was obviously struck by another sort of object. There were there was more than one stick. There were several sticks that were taken from the scene, this woods, Robin Hood Hills, uh, that police had good reason to believe were involved in the uh, killings. Uh, Adam, Adam Galvin on his website, and I can't think of what it is right now, but anyway, I would suggest you look it up, but he, uh, he's gone through, you know, an extensive examination of the, the sticks at the scene and what was likely used and so forth and makes a pretty convincing case about which sticks were actually used. Um, now, so what's the significance of the threefold death? Let me say that, you know, Eccles frequented the library. I wouldn't say he was, I wouldn't say he was or is now particularly well-educated or uh, I'm not sure how conversant he is on other topics. He might, you know, he had a lot of time to read and I'm sure he picked up a lot of random information uh, in, in uh, his time in prison, and he certainly seems to have gone about studying the occult in a s systemic way and uh, or systematic way. And and he, uh, I think he's was per is quite knowledgeable about that now, far more than you probably that I would ever be, and probably far more than most of the almost anybody who's listening to this podcast would ever be. Uh, and he considered himself to be very knowledgeable about the occult back in 1993. And maybe he was just being presumptuous and uh, arrogant in typical teenage style. But, you know, in point of fact, he, he seems to have taken this serious, this particular set of beliefs quite seriously at, at that age and had pursued it. Uh, studies of that to almost to the exclusion of anything else. Now, there was a book that came out in 1989 about what's no uh, a body found in in uh, England in a bog, peat bog, called the Lindau Man. I want, you know, and, and I think the conclusions of the book, uh, as you would expect, just because of the nature of academia, uh, you know, they came to some conclusions in there. And the book, this book, uh, Ann Ross and Don Robbins came to some conclusions that I'm sure disputed by other experts. That's not really relevant uh, to what I'm saying because... You know, this is, isn't about whatever the veracity of what they discovered, but it is about what they, it is about their discovery. Uh, the book was widely reviewed, uh, bought by many public libraries. Was it in the public library at uh, West Memphis? You know, I just don't know. I don't know, and I'm not claiming that I know. Uh, at this point, I'm not sure, you know, there's no evidence that 
as far as I know, that Eccles checked out the book if it existed in the cut catalog at that time. And, uh, and there's a library in Marion, too, which would have been much smaller. And I, I would be very surprised if that book showed up at the li in the library at Marion, but it's certainly possible. As far as Memphis, which was not far away, I, I know the book was at the at the library in, in uh, Memphis in 1989. I'm, I'm just positive it was. I think I even saw a copy of it. I read the book. I read, I was interested in this for some reason and, and around that time, and I believe I checked, I either picked up, I picked the book up someplace, I may have checked it out of the library. Anyway, I am going to talk about the threefold death. This marked in here, and it's for some reason. Oh, here it is. The triple death. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read what they have to say about this. This isn't real long, but. Uh, understood that uh, the Celts and their beliefs had a would, have, would have had a tremendous influence. They were pagans and they would have had a tremendous influence on what at least some of the Wiccans and some of the people involved in the witchier aspects of the occult would have been involved in back in, even now and also back in, 1990 to 93, 94, when we know Eccles was, seems to have been most, in, most heavily involved in his studies of uh, the occult prior to going to prison. So, um, the triple death, I'm going to quote them from this point on. I may do an aside, but, and I may skip over a few things, but basically I'm going to read this. The Celts did everything in threes. Three was their sacred number. It linked tales, legends, and deities together throughout their society, and it was omnipresent in their art and literature. Many of their gods and goddesses have three aspects. I'm going to break off here and say, uh, according to Jerry Driver, uh, the gods that uh, Eccles was most goddesses actually that Eccles was most involved with at, at this time according to what he told driver were Hecate H-E-C-A-T-E I think it's how it's pronounced and Diana which were uh, really ancient gods that uh, harken back to Greek and Roman times uh, goddesses of the hunts and they have a, a triple aspect they're also goddesses of the crossroads also, goddesses, uh, the dog was sacred to those uh, goddesses. They are triple-faced goddesses, so that they would have the uh, maiden, the mother and the crone, or something like that. You know, they would have a young woman, a, mother, a woman of matronly or motherly age, and then they would have an old old woman. And, and this, this is an archetype that keeps popping up in... Uh, the literature even now, the occult literature. Anyway, so it's 
and then also god goddesses of the hunt and goddesses of the forest uh you know this was a kind of a forest it was at a crossroads one of the biggest crossroads in the country arguably one of the most significant crossroads in the country it's actually co-joins you know briefly there uh I-40 and uh, I-55, which are two interstates that uh, one goes all the way from Chicago to New Orleans and the other one goes all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast. Anyway, this is, this is back to the book. Many of their gods and goddesses have three aspects and the vast and complex Celtic pantheon is dominated by three mighty gods each hungry for human sacrifice. Tyrannus, the thunder god, Isis, the lord and master, and Teutates, I guess is how it's pronounced, the overall god of the people. Each of these gods was offered his victims in a particular way. Uh, Tyrannus required prisoners of war to be burned alive in giant wicker cages. If you've seen the movie Wicker Man, you will remember that. Uh, while Isis was offered victims who were either hanged from sacred trees or stabbed to death or both. Teutates, however, took his sacrifices into a watery embrace in the sacred wells and pools that always figured very strongly among Celtic holy sites. These wells and pools were also the receptacles for elaborate and costly offerings of weapons and ornaments to the gods. Our continuing custom of throwing coins into fountains is a distant echo of these powerful pagan rites. We see individual deaths by stabbing, hanging, and drowning among the da Danish bog bodies. These are bodies that were found in Denmark that were, that were similarly preserved from uh, prehistoric times. And stabbing and hanging were, are by far the most common modes of ritual death. This does not necessarily mean that the Danish bodies suffered death under Celtic ritual, for it is generally supposed that Iron Age Denmark was peopled by Teutonic or Germanic tribes who had sufficiently bloodthirsty gods of their own. But let's make it clear that the pagans, as this book states, who are their beliefs and practices are revered by Wiccans and and other members of the occult, and I am not suggesting that Wiccans actively promote human sacrifice, but there is a doorway there. I mean, if you're going to recreate what was was done in pagan times, there is there is the human sacrifice element to at least be considered if if, if discarded. Uh, to go on, the god Odin or Woden, who was also the major deity of the pagan Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavian Vikings, were commonly offered human sacrifices in which victims were hanged from a sacred tree and had their throats slashed. In this way, Odin is equated with Isis. Likewise, Tyrannus with his thunder, lightning, and magic hammer has a ready parallel on the Germanic Thor or Thunor. The name of the god Teutius is derived from the Celtic word Teuta, meaning tribe. He was the god of the tribe, the god of the people. The name Teuton is synonymous with German. A tribe called the Teutons is known to have fought against the Romans in 106 and 105 
108 and 105 BC. The word Germani was originally the name of a Celtic tribe, which must have been powerful for a large territory on the right bank, right bank of the river Rhine was known as Germania. From this tribal name, the word German is derived, and the word Teuton is synonymous with the German. And, you know, that, most of you should be familiar with the term Teutonic. Uh, at first sight, Lindau man, garroted and with a severed jugular, seemed to have been an offering to Isis. Unlike the Toland and Dark Grawbell men who were hanged and stabbed, respectively. He suffered both of these death strokes before, after the initial stunning, but his final resting place in the pool of water appeared to make him an offering to Tutus, Tutatus, the god of the people. What then of Tyrannus, the thunder? If we were looking for a triple offering, we had to seek Tyrannus's share in the opening stages of the ritual, now that we have found the characteristic signs of Isis and Teutatus. The fire offering to Tyrannus clearly resides in the baking of the sacred bread and the ritual searing, which is the starting point of the whole ceremony. And it talks about the uh, an eating of uh, uh, sacred bread in this ritual. They found this remnants of bread in this bog body's stomach. The only place left to look was in the part we had so far perhaps unwisely discounted. This was the stunning of Lindau Man prior to garroting. We had thought of this as a mercy stroke at first, but as the ceremony began to take place and the significance of each step was revealed, it seemed less and less likely that any superfluous action would have been included or that the conduct of this very special rite would have been swayed by any considerations of mercy or compassion. Now here we get into it. The first clue in looking for, at the stunning blows lay in their number, for there were three. Two were on the crown and one at the base of the skull. That's from the book. Michael Moore had two blows to the top of his head and one at the base of his skull. The other two boys had, according to Frank Peretti, and I don't know anybody who really disputes this, had very very similar blows to the base of the skull, and they also had blows to the top of the head. Um, uh, um, Christopher Byers, and one of the few places Christopher Byers wasn't horribly uh, attacked was at the, the, the crown of his head. He didn't have uh, markings there. Uh, the Michael Moore had very specific wounds here that correspond to the wounds that were very similar wounds to what were found in this Lindau man. Now, did Damien Eccles read this book and th think, well, you know, when I get around to killing somebody, I'm going to make sure I kill them in this particular way because it would have ritual efficacy. My argument would be, yeah, probably, or it's not, or at least it's not unlikely. That's kind of where his mind goes with this stuff. From what I can see, and it's where his mind still is, in terms of rituals being effective ways of gaining power. That's what his book's all about. Okay, back to the book. There seemed little doubt that both blows on the crown of the skull had been deliberately and precisely 
precisely aimed at a stationary target. They had not resulted from a violent attack against a moving victim, where two blows out of a whole onslaught had connected. Likewise, the fracture on the base of the skull also seemed well-judged and carefully delivered on a stationary target. And that seems to have been the case with, particularly with the base of the skull, with all three of the boys. This kind of killing blow, with ritual efficacy back in pagan times, was delivered to all three boys that afternoon. Uh, back to the book. And these three blows from, from an axe, delivered with the sudden awful force of a thunderbolt, the marker Tyrannus. They didn't use an axe in West Memphis. Truly, Lindau Man had died a triple death through the stunning and lethal blows of the axe, the crushing force of the garrot that, I think that's how that's pronounced, that choked him and then broke his neck, and the cold embrace of the pool that symbolically drowned him in the fi final stage. The stab wound to his neck had already been revealed as a precise incision intended to drain the body of blood rather than a killing stroke, and we also had noted the significance of the figure three. There were three knots in the sinew cord used in the garroting, just as in the first phase there were three axe blows to his head. Now, as we many of you know, I, most of you who follow the case know, that all three of these boys were bound in a rather strange fashion um, with shoestrings with their sometimes called erroneously referred to as hog tying, but you wouldn't hog tie somebody like this because it wouldn't render them immobile uh, because they were tied right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to left ankle. If you're conscious, it's, it's not hard to get out of, twist that around and manipulate things and get out. It, it, it would not be immobilizing at all. Uh, Unfortunately, I, working against my premise is, is that there, I tried to discover, you know, there are different, there were different knots uh, used on the different boys, which indicated multiple people were tying the knots. Uh, but I, and, and not, not, knots are a form of, uh, ritual work that are explicitly referred to in Buckland's um, book of witchcraft that uh, Eccles was quite familiar with. Uh, the local local occultist and the little um, Wiccan cult that he he may or may not have been involved in. Murray Ferris says he and Chris Luttrell both say that, yeah, they were using Buckland's book and Eccles might have been peripherally involved, but he wasn't really part of their little cult. And I would, to be generous about this, I would say they, these were just two curious teenage dabblers in, 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 in this who were obviously trying out different things. Not something highly unusual, and as far as I can see, they—I mean—they had a both had a strange alibi, but a real alibi for the time of the killings. Uh, they—they were 
these two occultists were both at, ch at a church, uh, church youth night enjoying a pizza, I believe, when, and with the, and had the notice of the uh, pastor. So uh, if they were looking for an alibi, they had one. I'm not suggesting they were looking for an alibi, but they really had a good one. Uh, much better than anything that uh, Eccles, um, Baldwin, or Miskelly ever came up with. Okay, back to the book. Uh, since each mode of death offered him in turn to a different god, and he probably died at the feast of the mighty Celtic sun god Belanos, the importance of his death went far beyond the initial impression of macabre overkill. Why this special death was visited upon him or why he offered himself for it, as seemed possible, we did not yet know, but we had already begun to suspect that such an extraordinary death and offering to the gods would not have been made would not be made on a routine basis, nor with any randomly chosen aristocrat. This special death required a very special person. Uh, and they go on to talk about their theory about who this special person was, that he was a prince and the uh, druid hierarchy and so on and so forth. Now, that's... Uh, That's one, one thing we're going to talk. I, I, I think what you can see where I, I, I'm coming from on this, which is that uh, there was a ra uh, an occult rationale for uh, the mode of death, the triple killings, the overkill. Um, tend to think there was a strong sexual co component in here, and there's certainly a lot of evidence that suggested there suggests that there was too. But that's uh, not going to be our subject for today. I'm, now I'm going to read, pull some things from a book that we know that uh, Brian Ridge used uh, as a reference uh, in looking at the evidence. Um, it's not a book that's easy to obtain, or it's easy enough to obtain if you want to pay the price, but it's not, at least I haven't checked it lately, but it wasn't cheap for me to acquire this. And I assume that uh, it's not any cheaper now a few years later. It's a book called Occult Crime Detection, Investigation, and Verification by William Edward Lee Dubois. The only title I believe that Mr. Dubois put out, uh, and it was from sometime in the. Let's see when is he was he was a uh, basically he was a what was known as a cult cop, and there, you know there were occult crime seminars that were. Oh, he did put out another book called Occult Crime Control, the Law Enforcement Manual of Investigation, Analysis, and Prevention. Uh, I don't have that book. I'm not sure it's even available anymore, but anywhere. But um, he was involved in um, this activity that had come up among cops uh, who felt that there, were, there was... Uh, 
high incidence of occult-related crime back in the 1980s. Um, for the most part, this has been totally discounted now as, as you know, uh, satanic panic. And in truth, there were, you know, most of the crimes they're talking about are actually, were actually things such as vandalism and, and, you know, that sort of stuff. People come in someplace, which they were doing in, they were doing in West Memphis, and it's verified long before, uh, or not long, but in a year before the uh, killings, you know, there were, there were sites where uh, the old Dobbs school had a, a room that had uh, what looked like a ceremonial, uh, occult ceremonial circle set up, and there were a lot of uh, vestiges of occult ritual there. Uh, the school burned down since, and we don't have photos of that, and honestly, there's not a lot, not a lot of information on that, but uh, there is enough that, you know, we can suggest that it, they, the cops weren't just making this up. And so they had some real concerns about uh, what they perceived as perhaps some dangerous activity going on, though it hadn't translated at that point to anything serious. And, you know, by even bringing this up, it, I, you know, I, I, I would get, I'm going to be derided and attacked as uh, somebody who's uh, promoting satanic panic and and uh, validating these outdated theories from the 1980s. And the truth is, is there was an o overreaction in uh, law enforcement uh, that was fed to a large extent by social workers who were doing some very strange, uh, you know, there was some things going on in pop culture with Michelle remembers recovered memories, which is somewhat tied in strangely with, you know, alien abductions. There was this whole, there, you know, the stories in some, in some ways were very, were similar in some ways, very different, but you know, there's obviously some sort of phenomenon going on, and and I think it's I think it's a real thing, as far as a phenomenon where people were reporting what seemed to be real to them, as far as the alien abductions. You know, you and basically what was happening is they were asking preschool children uh, who were in daycare centers, uh, where there was a suspicion of sexual abuse. They were asking them questions, and they were getting these rather wild, more than rather wild, completely unbelievable fantasies about what went on uh, to the point that I don't really see how they, any of these investigators ever took it seriously. It's very much the same sort of story that you heard from little Aaron Hutchinson whenever he was pressed repeatedly by the police to come up with a story about his friends and, and what went on in the woods and so forth. Um, and whether there was an element, in, there's usually some sort of little, little bits and pieces of truth in these stories, but they're totally blown out of proportion. Uh, I think there's a book called The Witch Hunt Narrative, which I may get into at some point, that talks about the sort of counter hysteria that went with uh, that went with the 
his um, satanic panic where there was an over there was a counter there was a reaction to satanic panic that went overboard in the other direction and corrected too much and then in fact there was sexual abuse going on in in some of these cases that basically got swept aside or, or ignored or, or, or in particular what would happen when they would get lumped in with these satanic panic cases and uh, I think this makes perfect sense to me I, I, I was working I worked as in the final stages of editing one of the often cited in large newspaper series on satanic panic that was ever produced in the United States, which was a, a series by uh, Tom Charlier and Shirley Downing, and uh, I think it came out in 1989. It was one of the few instances, instances where the newspaper, I worked at the Commercial Appeal at that time, uh, and one of the few instances where the Commercial Appeal actually printed out uh, a separate uh, publication that was just this series and distributed it rather widely. It got it got was cited in many cases. I, I have to tell you that I had a lot of problems in editing that series. It's been almost 30 years, so I can't give you any specifics at this point. Uh, but there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of things that didn't that had to be fixed at the last minute. Uh, in terms of references to cases and who was charged, there were just a lot of problems with with the editing at that point. I, I got the impression the reporters had both done diligent work and turned turned you know in their their work, but there hadn't been a lot of coordination of information, particularly in terms of what showed up in the graphics, and so. It was a lot of trouble for me to go back and try to get it all straightened out, and I, I honestly have to say, you know, I don't think it all it all did get straightened out. Uh, you know, I wasn't in a position where I could say, "Look, uh, we're not going to run this until you get this all straight." I, I I I was an editor who was at a position where I could say, "You know, you got a problem here, you need to fix," and if they didn't fix it. I had nothing to, to do beyond that, you know, I had nothing to do beyond pointing it out and suggesting strongly that, you know, you got a real problem here. They did go in and fix quite a bit of it, but I'm not sure they fixed it all. And, and I think they actually, that series, which was really to counter the idea that there was any valid basis to satanic panic, sort of almost... <laughs> It, it did two things. I think in some senses, it did three or four things, actually. One thing it did, it, it sort of continued to feed a little bit of satanic panic. It put the uh, put a, a damper on some of the enthusiasm for it. And uh, the third thing is, is our third thing is it gave a misleading impression about how widespread satanic panic actually was, which it was not, you know, there, there were some cases. There was one in Memphis um, uh, at the Georgian Hills Baptist Church that went on that really inspired, that was the genesis, that was the impetus really for this, this series uh, in which this middle-aged Baptist lady was, you know, pilloried as, you know, some sort of head Satanist or something, which was the whole thing. It always seemed, it always seemed ridiculous to me at that level.
does something actually go on there? I, I have no idea. And, you know, part of the problem that's happened is, is the, the overkill, the, the, I won't get stay away from the overstatement on both ends has really obscured what, what, if there were, if there were real problems there. And I am not suggesting that particular lady was involved in abusing children in any way. I don't know, as I recall that case, like many of the uh, satanic panic cases sort of fizzled out toward the end. She may have pleaded guilty to some minor, to some misdemeanor or something, but you know, uh, I, I'm not even sure about that. I could look it up, but the, the point, the point of this is not the Georgian Hills case. The point is, uh, satanic panic. Anyway, Edward Lee, William Edward Lee Dubois, it's quite a name there, occult crime. And uh, there's several things in here I'm going to read from. And I may just wrap this up today and get in. I was going to get into all the uh, one of the favorite topics, uh, the West Memphis Three, well, alternative suspects. But I, I, I think maybe I've gone on long enough today on this. Uh, I didn't really intend to, but that's, that's where it's gone. So uh, I'll read some stuff from Edward... William Edward Lee Dubois he states on uh, a page about uh, ritualistic homicides. He says, the injuries sustained at rituals appear in an uncommon combination, making recognition easy once the officer has the profile and making it unlikely that this in in injury pattern would be seen in a non-occult case. I would suggest this just the injuries alone to the base of the skull with a particular instrument in that fashion and the tying of the boys that these are you know repeated uh, actions there's nothing random about it they're they're organized on some level uh, I would and I would suggest that Damien Eccles had according to his own uh, written words uh, went to bed every night as a child fantasizing over uh, what he'd read about the Salem witch trials, which involved uh, rituals, involved various forms of torture. Or they called it interrogation. I think most of us would call it torture. And, and you know, including, you know, I believe they dunked in the water. That was one of you know throw, putting a witch in the water was was uh, one of the tests, uh, one of those tests that was very difficult to pass. Had a double bind if you know if you were you were telling the truth you you drowned and if you weren't telling the truth you floated. <laughs> <coughs> the witches floated, <laughs> but if you were a witch you drowned. Uh, here's some of the, uh, he talks about some of the forensic terminology, including sharp object injury, uh, AKA bladed weapon injury, a def defect caused by edge weapons, such as knives, razor blades, or glass. The wounds are clean injuries with sharp edges showing no abrasions, tissue bridges are bruising in the area of the wound, except knife hilt bruising in cases where the blade is fully inserted. Uh, 
Oh, he's just, this goes on with this. I'm... Okay, ritualistic homicide profile for clandestine Satanist. And I, you know, was Eccles a clandestine Satanist? I don't know. He seemed to like to play, play it both ways. And, you know, his man, Aleister Crowley, would be proud of him in that respect. I mean, he did tell um, Brian Ridge that, uh, Officer Brian Ridge, one of the, he was the lead investigator, that uh, Anton LaVey, who was the author of the Satanic Bible, was his favorite author, one of his favorite authors, along with Stephen King. And, you know, that's just not, not only is it not typical reading material for a 18-year-old man in West Memphis, Arkansas. It's uh, not really typical reading material unless you're at least, very least, highly curious about Satan, Satanism. Anyway, and for somebody who read a lot, it's unusual for him to mention it. And I, I do think he was, in a sense, trolling the officers. He was playing a game with the officers, a game that backfired. He was going to show off how smart he was. And he was going to act like, oh, yeah, I'm a Satanist, but what are you going to do about it? And uh, he found out. Anyway, uh, location and initial observations. It would be, and some of, some of the things that, that uh, this book says uh, don't correspond to this crime scene, but some do. So draw your own conclusions from this. It would be highly unusual to find the victim of a ritualistic homicide in the vicinity of the ritual site, uh, which I, I, actually that's, we got off to a start. The, the victims were found in the vicinity of the ritual site. It is also unlikely that the victim will be buried as burial is time consuming and clandestine groups expect satanic protection. They believe that they will not be caught and that a dump body will not be connected to them. I think that's safe to say that that's what Eccles thought. The body will be dumped in a random open-air location outside of metropolitan areas, possibly in a public area such as on the side of a highway or in a remote area such as on national parkland. Uh, it's... I wouldn't say they were open air, they were underwater, but the, the site is, the site of the killing was, uh, in a, you know, it's a strange sort of thing. It was, it was woods, heavily, it was a heavily wooded three acres adjacent to a busy truck stop, adjacent to one of the busiest interstates in the country. Uh, not far from a, a middle-class neighborhood where these three boys lived, uh, in the middle, in a you know a fair-sized town, uh, not far from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, but you know, in a certain sense, it was remote. Uh, it was not a place that people just went to unless they had an object of going there for some reason. Or in Eccles' case, you if you were walking from where he lived with his parents to Lake uh, Lakeshore, he would have to to see his friends in uh, uh, Jason Baldwin and his girlfriend Damien Tear at the, the trailer park they lived in. Then he almost the only real 
shortcut he really had if he was walking was across that pipe. Otherwise, he was going to have to go way out of his way, go all the way down Ingalls, Ingalls Boulevard, or go all the way up to 7th Street. Uh, instead, it, it, it cut quite a bit of walking out of the way. Um, so he was, and he told police, he, he testified that he was familiar with the area and went through there two or three times a week. He also walked through there, you know, in the afternoon, uh, about the time that, say, Jason would be getting home from school, because a lot of his motivation was to spend time with Jason. Dominique sometimes seems like she was an afterthought, though she did hang out with him, and he was motivated to be with her for kind of obvious reasons. But uh, uh, he would have been going through the woods just about the time that these three boys would be getting out of school. Victims were far more likely to be male than female, as males are preferred victims for sacrifice. The body will be nude and may be carefully placed in an unusual manner, such as spread eagle, arms straight out with the head to the south. You know, I simply, before I read this, I simply, I need to go back and check and see which way the heads were facing. I don't know if he was paying that much attention to that at, at the time. I, it seems to me that they were the heads were facing south, but I am not sure of that. Additionally, the body may be smeared with oil or human animal waste, or maybe drippings of candle wax on the victim's flesh. The clothing may be recovered nearby. Well, they, obviously they weren't smeared with anything, but there were uh, there were there were there was a candle wax found on a shirt, Stevie Branch's shirt, uh, wax a waxy substance uh, that matched. Uh, that very similar to wax found uh, in Eccles' bedroom, Dominique Tears' bedroom, and it, there were even some remnants found in uh, Jason Baldwin's home, on a, I believe on some soap, which indicates maybe Jason washed wax off his hands or something. Or somebody did. I, I don't really know what that means, but it was there. Uh, the clothing was recovered nearby, and it was obscured too, and it was placed down in the water, stuff that sticks. Uh, primary injury pattern. Let's see how we go here. The <coughs> excuse me. The body will exhibit multiple non-fatal sharp object injuries from double-edged blade bladed weapons. As that, that isn't precisely correspond, but let's go on with this. Uh, incised wounds, stab wounds, and incised stab wounds. Incised wounds and incised stab wounds will be the most prevalent. Incised wounds will vary in depth, some superficial, some quite deep. There will be a wide dispersion of wounds with injuries located on both the front and back of the torso. Incised wounds will be the most prevalent on the chest, back, and upper legs. Stab wounds will be the most prevalent on the abdomen and buttocks. Incised stab wounds will be the most prevalent on the back and abdomen. The majority of wounds will not seem not will the majority of wounds will be non-life-threatening in the immediate sense. However, stab wounds to the abdomen 
will perforate internal organs. Virtually everything I read up to that point was pretty much on target with the wounds to the boys. There were no stab wounds to the abdomen penetrating internal organs. There will be no defense wounds or other evidence of struggle, and there was some sign of defense wounds. And minimal bruising <coughs> on the victim. Knife wounds to the neck are unlikely, but the face may be mutilated, as was Stevie Branch's face. In most cases, hands, lower arms, and lower legs will sus sustain minimal injury. Uh, however, the fingers may be cut off one hand. Did not happen there. Typically, this injury will be antemortem. Human or canine bark marks are possible but uncommon. And we, that gets into a whole different thing about whether there were bite marks on this or not, uh, on, the, on, the, on the bodies or not. Uh, I tend to think that, that there's not any sort of bite marks on there, but it's not impossible. Injury analysis will reveal multiple weapon use. Yes, multiple weapons were used. The weapons will not be recovered with the victim, and it is highly unlikely that a broken part of the weapon will be recovered inside the corpse due to the high quality of occult knives. There will be a lack of blood at the recovery location. There was a lack of blood at the recovery location. Uh, no, no weapons were recovered with the victims. Uh, it talks about dismemberment here, which isn't really something that uh, happened here. Mutilation. Mutilation at ritualistic homicides is a form of torture, so these injuries will be antemortem. Sexual organs will be mutilated or removed, as in the case of Christopher Byers. In male victims, the penis or testicles will be removed, nipples will be cut off, the eyes will be gouged out, and the tongue may be missing. This goes on here about some other wounds found at the scene. Um, yeah, some of that certainly applied to the wounds we found in... Uh, <coughs> excuse me a second. Some of that applies to the wounds that we did, I didn't find, but that were found in, in uh, uh, West Memphis, uh, particularly uh, Christopher Byers' uh, being degloved, having his testicles removed and his penis mutilated. Uh, mentions occult indicators here, such as occult symbols. Uh, there weren't any found at the scene. Uh, evidence of sexual assault will be found regardless of the victim's sex. There was some evidence of sexual assault, including injuries to Stevie's penis and uh, the boys had injuries to the mouth that could have been from oral sex. Uh, the there were injuries to the ears that indicated that's how they were being held, forced to perform. Um, um, there was some injury. There was some dilation in the in the anus for all three. Some of that was apparently from being in the water, there really wasn't any evidence of penetration, which belies uh, what uh, Ms. Skelly initially described in the sexual assaults. There was uh, 
a salmon stain that was found on, um, I believe it's Stevie's, Stevie's jeans or what appeared to be a, such a stain on Stevie's jeans that would correspond to Miss Kelly describing Eccles masturbating over the bodies and ejaculating. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, evidence of restraint, bruising, or rope burns on the wrist and ankles will be found indicating the victim was restrained with ropes or handcuffs, he, or, or in this case, shoestrings. Uh, crime scene. If the crime scene is located prior to cleanup, officers should expect that extensive spatter, blood droplets, and pooling of blood will be seen, but that no major evidence of struggle-style smearing will be evident. You know, there really wasn't much sign at all of any kind of struggle at the scene, and and uh, he later goes on to say that you know a clean site is is indication is one indication. Or, or it's not uncommon. Uh, as, as the uh, not uncommonly seen for occult crimes, and he talks about uh, looking for you know signs that the boys that, that the victims have been held for some time, including you know stomach contents, etc., etc. It says probable stomach contents include sperm, urine, wine, blood, and possibly feces. The whole question of Eccles, there's a whole question involving Eccles describing your, uh, the bodies being placed in the water to wash out the urine that might have been swallowed. Uh, he disputes this and claims that he heard this from, uh, from Steve Jones. Uh, There was no, there was some strange fluid. I'm not sure it was ever tested that, that was found in a couple of the stomachs. But uh, was it verified as urine? I don't think so. Uh, the question of the urine was brought up by Eccles, but it was not, certainly not in the public. And um, Gitchell was informed of the possibility of urine found in the stomach a couple of weeks a couple of weeks I think a week or two after the interview with Eccles and he'd he there he had heard nothing of that prior to that uh, and it was kept uh, it was not it was kept close to the investigation it was not made public in any way uh, violent Oh, let me see. Let me go on here. A clean sites. A unique piece of evidence that is commonly overlooked is the clean site. If officers are sent to check on the site of an alleged ritual after the fact, they should be suspicious if they find nothing. Uh, and it goes on to say that uh, uh, many reported rituals called in by citizens are actually just outdoor parties. That seems pretty reasonable to conclude. However, the lack of any signs of activity should alert officers to the fact that something unusual has taken place. 
frequently, um, here's the rationale for this, frequently American citizens don't clean up well after outdoor parties. Normal outdoor party goers leave beer bottles or cans, empty potato sacks, chip sacks, remains of campfires, etc. The site of a clandestine satanic rite, by contrast, looks too clean. And in fact, the, 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 the site of the uh, crime in Robin Hood Hills looked very clean indeed. There's more here, and I feel kind of bad that I got off on this tangent and because I really intended to talk about something that just continually comes up, which is these alternative suspects, and I'll, I will get into that next time. Uh, I'll say just briefly that I, you know, I, I'm aware that there are all sorts of, I, I think people aren't aware how many alternative suspects were floated uh, as, you know, possibilities by the police it's not just not just what we've seen in the movies and, and the media but uh, below that level but at the level of the investigation there were lots of people that were looked at uh, we're, I'm gonna go over that my intention <laughs> I don't want to make a promise that I'm not going to keep but my intention is next time to go into the alternative suspects and of course those would include uh, the adoptive father John Mark Byers and the uh, stepfather Terry Hobbs, and of course there's also Mr. Bojangles. I would say that that there's not a really good argument to me to be made. Briefly, I will say there's not a good argument to be made for any of them being involved in this uh, this crime in any way, except well the two parents, except as as they are also victims of this crime and have been further victimized by how they've been treated by the media. Uh, Mark Byers' case, in particular, this is somewhat of a, he's a vulnerable person at the time, and I think the filmmakers took advantage of him, and he, he did go along with it. Uh, but, you know, he, he made himself out to look much worse than he should have. And I guess it made for entertaining, t entertaining television, but it didn't help him. In the long run, whatever little money he got out of that really... I'm sure that money's long gone, and what does he have to show for it except an image of himself on, on, on screen looking like a crazed idiot? Uh, no offense, Mr. Byers, but you know I, I realize it was an act. Um, and with Terry Hobbs, uh, <coughs> there's much less of this. Um, you know, the 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 smartest media move. Uh, was the decision by the Moore family to just simply not have anything to do with the filmmakers and not basically stay below that level in terms of media after after the initial movie came out. And who can blame them when they see how they were treated, how the bodies of their son, the body of their son was displayed and, you know, this demeaning, sickening sort of way at the first of the movie uh, uh, for shock value. And it is shocking. It is horrible. And no parent should have to see that. 
and no child should be treated to what I can think of as a further form of abuse. You know, you, you may be dead, but you, you have a memory and your mem memory of many people of those boys is going to be nothing more than three sad little corpses laid up on a, a creek bank. Um, and that needs to be remembered, but they were more than that. Uh, much more than that. Uh, they were victims in every sense of the word. And they, again, they were ones who have been further victimized by the media, by dishonest filmmakers, uh, by newspaper reporters who can't even bother to even learn the basic facts or follow basic rules of journalism or try to produce something that's at least somewhat balanced and objective. And maybe I've gone too far to the other end with this, and, and but you know I'm I'm pretty explicit about what, what I think about it. Is I think they're, I think that by any standard they are guilty in the sense that they were found guilty, and they uh, pled guilty. So to call them guilty of this crime of these and I think they're factually guilty as well. So you know the idea that. I got a lot of pushback just initially referring to them as, as killers or the convicted <laughs> back when I was working at the West Memphis Evening Times. You know, it seemed to me ridiculous then. It seems even more ridiculous now. Uh, why, you know, go to prisons and talk to the people there, talk to the inmates. All of them are innocent. None of them did it. Well, a few exceptions. There's a few honest. There are a few honest people, or people who don't feel they have anything left to lose. Who'll say, "Oh yeah, I did it. No big deal." Maybe they're happy in prison. Some of them are sociopaths. They just don't care one way or the other. A lot of them are sociopaths. Don't care one way or the other. And there's some who are honestly guilty about guilty and real and want to take responsibility for it and more power to those people despite what they've done at least they're willing to be honest about it we got a little taste of that with jesse miskelly in this case and that he actually seems to be guilty about his to feel guilty about his part in this from time to time uh we've never gotten anything like that from uh the other two killers and i think on that note i'll end have a good uh have a good week. Uh, had a football game going in the background, and haven't checked lately because I've been busy with this. But the last I checked, it looked like New England was thoroughly trouncing their opponents. And uh, yeah, fourth quarter, forty-one to fourteen. I would say say that uh, the Patriots probably have that game in hand. Anyway, that's enough from me for today. Thank you.
Oh no.